Welcome to the Wellness Journey podcast from the St. John Vianney Center. I'm Don Marks, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to journey with you, and hopefully to provide you with information that will help inform and inspire you. Our podcasts are aimed at keeping you healthy in mind, body, and spirit. This is podcast number 40. The title of today's talk is The Dance of Aging, Responding with Grace to Cognitive Decline. Be specifically talking about cognitive aspects of aging and um, particularly about um, a serious cognitive decline, uh, which we would um, call neurocognitive disorder. So I'm going to focus primarily on that. The, The subtitle here, Responding with Grace to Cognitive Decline, is an allusion actually um, not necessarily the most easy to recognize one, but an allusion to um, a uh, Meister Eckhart sermon. Uh, Eckhart talks about a man, an elderly man, who comes to him uh, with a lot of suffering related to aging, including arthritis and um, uh, a variety of other uh, physical ailments. And um, uh, he, uh, Eckhart asked the man, is there anything um, that you want me to pray for, um, for you? And, and the man says, um, it, it, you don't need to ask God to take anything away from me, um, but please ask him to extend me a little more grace to cope with what I have. So my my thought here is about uh, making room for the experiences and ways that we can make room uh, for some of the more difficult experiences associated with aging. That more than 20% of U.S. citizens will be 65 or older. Um, psychologically speaking, this is kind of a mixed blessing. Uh, there are um, benefits associated with aging that have to do with our emotional well-being that um, generally speaking, and obviously, uh, you know, there are exceptions, but generally speaking, um, people experience lower rates of psychological distress, you know, things like anxiety and depression um, at 65 and over um, than people do from 18 to 64. Um, however, we're also more susceptible to chronic health conditions as we age, and um, those do have anxiety and depression associated with them. And, um, the outcomes for people uh, who have uh, health-related psychological distress uh, uh, are generally uh, not as good. Um, so if we have health-related depression or anxiety, um, that often contributes to greater functional impairment, uh, higher rates of placement in nursing home settings, increased mortality, and even more rapid cognitive decline. So I want to talk particularly about ways that we can address those problems so that we can prevent um, unnecessary suffering or unnecessary psychological distress. So there is just some, there are expected cognitive changes that go along with aging. I I don't think that this is likely a surprise to anybody, um, but it is kind of useful to take a look at this. This is from a very large study that was published in the journal Nature um, in um, 2004. And it's just looking at um, scores on measures of different uh, kinds of cognitive abilities across the lifespan. And you'll see, if you look at this, that there are some things 
that actually do get better as we age up to a point. So inductive reasoning, verbal ability, um, verbal memory, um, those uh, up until about age 65, 70 tend to be improving over the course of life. But there are some things like perceptual speed um, uh, that uh, just decline, generally speaking, um, from the time we're about, you know, our, our uh, neurologically we're fully developed around age 25, 26, and our perceptual speed and processing speed tends to decline rather steadily from that time onward. Um, so as we get into more advanced age, um, some of those abilities uh, are um, really waning. So things tend to happen more slowly. Processing speed is more difficult. And this is just, uh, we could say, expected aging. Now, there's one other thing that I want to say about this. It, these are average trajectories. And we all know that there is no such thing as an average human being. So just because this is the average trajectory doesn't mean that we can expect it about ourselves or the person sitting across from us, because each person has a unique trajectory and all that uniqueness, when we do these big epidemiological studies, all that uniqueness just gets kind of collapsed. So, and averaged out. And so, you know, this doesn't necessarily tell us anything about what to expect as individuals. So there's expected cognitive decline, and then there's dementia. And um, we don't actually use the word dementia anymore. I mean, we put sort of um, medically, at least. I mean, we could use it in um, common parlance and you know everyday language. Um, but the term uh, diagnostically has become neurocognitive disorder. So neurocognitive disorder is a syndrome that's associated with irreversible neurological changes that involve three criteria. Um, that it would be multiple deficits in a range of cognitive skills. So that would be things like attention, memory, planning, and problem solving. It has to include significant declines from previous levels of functioning. So it's not just like a little slippage, it's a significant decline. And we typically talk about this uh, as psychologists, we tend to talk about this in terms of standard deviations um, from the mean, which is really not, not all that helpful, a little jargony, but it, 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 we think about this being uh, changes on the order of two standard deviations. So if you're thinking about it, if you know the IQ framework, average IQ is 100, standard deviation is 15, you'd be talking about a 30-point decline in IQ being the kind of significant decline that we're talking about. So it's not just every day, I forgot where I put my keys, it's pretty significant declines from previous levels of functioning. Um, and there's notable disruption of daily routines and activities that result, right? Now, um, that th there is a, a classification and you may know about this, but there's a classification of different degrees of severity of neurocognitive disorder. So people often talk about there being major neurocognitive disorder and um, mild neurocognitive disorder. And mild would be a, a significantly uh, noticeable change, but maybe not on the order of two standard deviations, maybe not the same order of magnitude or the same scope uh, as major. It would be, um, you know, still a source of noticeable disruption in daily routines, though. 
And there's about 6 million people living with um, neurocognitive disorder in the U.S. right now. And it's estimated that that number is going to double every 20 years um, going forward. It's really important to recognize that we don't include under this heading of um, neurocognitive disorder or dementia, normal aging. That's not what we're talking about. Um, you know, those processing speed changes or some of the subtle memory problems that occur as, as we age. And we're also not talking about reversible changes in cognition. Uh, you may be aware of uh, the term delirium, which refers to a disturbance of consciousness and delirium is generally considered to be caused by a medical problem, you know, perhaps an electrolyte imbalance or intoxication by a substance or medication. And there are a variety of causes of delirium, but it is reversible. Um, and that's different um, from neurocognitive disorder. Um, and then there are also changes in our ability to function cognitively that have to do with our emotional distress. So if I'm very, very anxious, I'm not going to be as effective at remembering things, but that's a reversible problem. When I'm not anxious, I'll be able to remember. Or if I'm very down and dejected um, and maybe meeting criteria for depression, I'm not going to be a, as capable of planning and forethought and problem solving in some certain, certain, at least in some circumstances, as I would be if my mood were better. And so when my mood improves, I'll be able to do those things. So those don't come under this heading because they're reversible. So what are the causes of these problems? Well, you know, there are more than 70 different physiological conditions that have been identified as contributing to the development of neurocognitive disorder. There, a lot of them are overlapping and co-occurring, and they tend to be, in many cases, at least progressive, meaning that they worsen over time. What are the signs and symptoms? Well, you know, many of them you're probably familiar with. Um, from your experience of family members or members of the community, um, the most uh, well-known problem associated with neurocognitive disorder is loss of memory. And it can be loss of recent memory. It could be loss of remote memory or it could be both. It's often uh, associated with communication problems, uh, particularly if the person is experiencing vascular dementia and perhaps has a history of stroke. Um, there can be um, damage to the speech centers of the brain that can result in uh, problems with speaking, also aphasia, uh, problems with word finding. Um, there can be problems with task performance, um, just in difficulty completing everyday tasks, and some loss of coordination of movement. Um, there could be recognition problems um, called agnosias. Um, people are not necessarily able to recognize people that they otherwise know rather well. Um, or perhaps they can't recognize a problem when they're having it. Um, they might be uh, unable to remember or unable to recognize that they're having a physiological problem. Some of you may recall um, the Chief, um, Chief Justice, but Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas. Uh, he had a, a problem called anosognosia, uh, which meant that he couldn't recognize um, that he had another problem. He couldn't diagnose that he had another problem, which was that he was a wheelchair bound. And so he would 
um, continually tell people uh, about things that he could do and had done um, that involved walking and running and horseback riding and a variety of other things that he was no longer able to do. Um, but he just couldn't recognize that um, he had that limitation, he had that problem. We also typically see problems in what gets called, psychologists call executive functioning. <laughs> and they, these are um, skills like planning, problem solving, judgment, uh, volition, volition, taking action, and uh, abstract reasoning. And I always say, when I first learned about executive functioning, I had come to psychology from a, a career in the corporate world. I was a marketing director for a long time uh, before I became a psychologist. And I used to say, who, whoever called that set of skills executive functioning didn't know the same executives that I knew, because um, those, those were some skills I wasn't sure they had. And then um, some other problems are disorientation, so not knowing where you are, not knowing um, time of day, uh, what year it is, um, what place I'm in, things like that. Problems attending and concentrating. Um, some uh, pretty, uh, we call this uh, emotional lability, the kind of extreme or rapid fluctuations in emotional experience. And then some um, perceptual disturbances. It's really not uncommon with certain forms of neurocognitive disorder. Uh, one example is Lewy body dementia um, for people to have um, perceptual problems, thinking things are there that aren't there. Um, with Lewy body dementia, it's not uncommon for people to um, have olfactory hallucinations. So they smell things that aren't there. Um, and uh, these are indications um, that there's a neurocognitive problem. And then some of the most common illnesses that contribute to neurocognitive disorder, you're probably going to be familiar with many of these. Um, there's Alzheimer's disease, um, which contributes to pretty significant memory problems, as well as um, disorientation, difficulty with speaking as it progresses, um, some visual spatial skills problems and difficulty solving math problems, um, you know, calculating. So dyscalculia. There are also the frontotemporal dimensions, which um, for a time were called referred to as PICS disease. Um, th these are often associated with more impulsive responding. So a little bit more difficulty inhibiting behaviors, um, more difficulty monitoring one's own behavior. Um, and then memory problems, planning and problem solving difficulties, and some uh, kind of paucity of language production. So uh, a little bit less verbal, or in some cases, substantially less verbal than people were before. Parkinson's has cognitive uh, decline associated with it, uh, including difficulty with paying attention, um, visual spatial skills problems, loss of ability to initiate tasks. Sometimes people who are experiencing the effects of Parkinson's will just not initiate basic tasks of daily living that you would expect people to, to initiate. So, you know, they won't say hi, they won't um, maybe um, go to breakfast, uh, they just aren't going to do things um, because initiating tasks has become difficult. It's not uncommon for there to be some visual uh, problems and visual hallucinations uh, with Parkinson's. Vascular disease, um, this would be uh, things like uh, hypertensive stroke and um, transient ischemic attacks, um, and that can be associated with uh, memory problems, with planning problems, 
um, difficulties in social functioning, aphasia, as I mentioned before, so difficulties with language processing and speaking, and then sometimes visual spatial skills problems. So what I want to shift gears to here are the emotional aspects of these things. I think you, you probably have picked up that we're talking about um, pretty meaningful aspects of people's lives that are altered uh, by um, a cognitive decline. And I, I just want to kind of talk about the emotional dimensions of this for a moment, because I think these are the places where we've got to work when we're uh, interacting with our loved ones, our community members um, who are experiencing uh, these cognitive problems. So I'm not going to go through all of these, but um, I just want to kind of highlight a few here. Well, the, the, the symptoms of cognitive decline have uh, psychological consequences. So if I can't remember things, like if I, might, I can't remember my brother's name or my sister's name, um, I'm going to experience some frustration and also embarrassment in these situations. People experience pretty significant feelings of embarrassment when they can't remember where things are or they can't remember who people are. Um, if I can't share my thoughts and feelings with people because of communication difficulties, um, that can contribute to both frustration and anxiety, and uh, it can be very distressing. Also, over the long haul, as we'll see, this can contribute to pretty significant depression because I'm not interacting with people. I'm losing opportunities to do that. Same is true for inability to do the activities of daily living. If I, if I don't have an opportunity to do those activities of daily living, I can become quite apathetic um, because, you know, it, it, I'm not really getting much opportunity for good things to happen in my life. The agnosias, uh, you know, not, not really knowing uh, where, we, where one is or knowing what's happening to us um, can cause embarrassment and fear, just like other memory problems can. There can be some very embarrassing things where people, and not an uncommon problem, people don't recognize the toilet as the toilet, or they recognize instead, um, you know, uh, a chair or houseplant or something like that um, as uh, uh, the toilet. And so there's a tremendous amount of uh, fear and confusion and embarrassment that can go along with this. The problems with executive functioning um, can take all kinds of forms. And one of the probably most distressing aspects of this is that when we can't plan very well, we have a hard time controlling our impulses and so sometimes people will make loud or rude or very critical sounding comments. Um, and, uh, you know, that's pretty difficult for people around them to withstand. And, and, and often people feel like it's very personal um, and it has much more to do with what this person is able to do and, and what kinds of difficulties they're having with cognitive functioning and, and, you know, than it does with any kind of actual personal hostility but nevertheless, uh, a lot of psychological suffering associated with it. And, and I could kind of go on here, but I think you'll see that fear, abandonment, and sadness, disconnection from others are the big themes associated with these problems. I want to talk about a model of psychological functioning that um, I've been using for the last 10 years and research that 
I've been doing and my students and I at uh, Kane University have been doing on uh, a therapy, therapeutic intervention that's called compassion-focused acceptance and commitment therapy. And it's based on uh, the compassion-focused work of a man named Paul Gilbert, who's quite a wonderful psychologist and wrote a book that came out in 2009 called The Compassionate Mind. Um, and uh, Paul Gilbert has actually been knighted by the British um, government for his work in psychology. He's sort of a landmark psychologist uh, in the UK. Gilbert talks about these three dimensions of uh, the human person. Um, there's, and some of this will be obvious to you. Uh, there's uh, some basic kind of activating interests, resource focused, you know, and this would be things like the energetic acquisition of goods in life. And you could think about food as being one of those that, you know, we all have to be hungry and we have to be activated to go and get food to live and sustain ourselves. And so, um, you know, there are all, all kinds of ways that this system or dimension of human experience kind of comes into play. We can also be really interested in learning and we can be really interested in meeting new people. And there's all kinds of ways that we can be sort of acquisitive in life. And this dimension of our experience, we, we could say, is um, associated with this excited, engaged aspect of life. Then there is uh, the threat-focused system. Uh, we often talk about this as um, danger detection and removal. So there's a, a kind of uh, autonomic response to threat. Um, you're probably familiar with the terms, um, term fight or flight, the fight or flight system. It's um, protection and safety seeking. And um, it can be both activating and inhibiting. So can, you know, it can have a activating would be more like the fight dimension, or it can be inhibiting, it'd be more like the flight dimension. And then there's a dimension of the human person that we don't talk about enough, I would say. And that is the affiliative dimension. And that's our interest in being connected with others, and our need for a, a sense of uh, soothing interpersonal uh, uh, contact and interaction. It's affiliative focused. And there's a great psychologist, her name is Shelley Taylor, who wrote a book called The Tending Instinct. And she refers to this dimension of human functioning as the tend and befriend system, the tend and befriend system. And it's just as hardwired as the fight or flight system it's mediated by the hormones oxytocin and vasopressin. And whenever we're under stress, um, we are also drawn toward um, uh, mutual affiliation and support, you know, just in the way that we have a fight or flight system, we have a tend and befriend system. Now, a lot of the problems associated with cognitive decline evoke our threat detection framework. That's why I have the red square around this here, that we tend to become in the midst of cognitive decline threat focused. And this can be true for the person experiencing the decline or the person caring for uh, another person who is experiencing decline. And I want to talk about this. I want to illustrate how this happens behaviorally a little bit. So I've got this example that I often use 
if there were a room, if we, it's, it's kind of funny. I used to do this. I used to use this all the time when we were meeting in person. And I would say, if we weren't here in this room and there was a cat here, um, what are some of the things the cat could be doing? So if you can imagine the room you're in and you're not there, but there's a cat there, you know, what are some of the things that the cat could be doing? And, you know, it could be exploring, it could be sleeping, it could be hunting for mice, it could be drinking or eating. There's all kinds of activities the cat could be engaging in. And, you know, it could also be running away or frightened, but not very likely if the cat's in the room and nobody else is there, right? So the cat has a kind of behavioral repertoire, we would say, a range of behaviors in which it could engage. And there's varying probabilities of the cat engaging in any of those behaviors, right? Now, imagine we bring a big growly dog into the room. And at that point, my, my cat, I have a cat named Chester. My cat named Chester, if you bring a, bring a big growly dog into the room, Chester is lighting out for the territory at that point immediately, right? So the probability of all these behaviors here goes down to almost nothing. And the probability of fear arousal and running away goes way up. This, I think, is characteristic of the person experiencing cognitive decline and also people caring for others with cognitive decline, that it's a scary phenomenon. And because it's scary, it shrinks our behavioral repertoire and it narrows us down to fear behaviors more often. And sometimes it's fight or flight that it narrows us down to. And so we just wanna be aware of that that these experiences kind of reduce the likelihood of people engaging in things that they normally would. And we've got to think about how to address that, right? And it's not just cognitive decline that's at issue here. It's also the function, proper functioning of the human nervous system that reduces our behavioral repertoire when we're under threat. The long-term or longer-term consequence of that reduction in behavioral repertoire is that we have fewer opportunities for reward. So there's fewer opportunities for good things to happen. The more time I spend reacting in fear, the less time I spend enjoying my life. And the less time I spend enjoying my life, the more likelihood I am going to, uh, that, that I'm going to experience what we call depression. And we could think about this as um, Peter Lewinson's um, behavioral theory of depression, that as we lose opportunities for reinforcement, our sense of self-worth, our sense of possibilities, our sense of uh, opportunities declines. And we become um, low, we have lower energy, we begin to neglect our responsibilities because it doesn't seem like anything good is really going to come of them anyway. And we experience more self-criticism, more guilt, more hopelessness. So there's this path of um, social withdrawal. Um, and this follows from being more restricted in our behavioral repertoire because of fear. So there are many ways in which we could say that anxiety contributes to depression. So you may be familiar with this wonderful book, Man's Search for Meaning um, by Viktor Frankl. And there's a great picture of Viktor Frankl as a young man there. Um, Viktor Frankl, um, as you may know, was in um, 
the Nazi concentration camps. He was a um, psychiatrist and uh, he was uh, uh, Jewish and he was uh, interred in the camps and he cared for his patients there um, with very little. He was given very little, um, almost no medical supplies um, to provide the care um, that his patients needed. And he actually had an opportunity to escape um, but didn't leave because he had he he had a commitment to his patients. He had a commitment to take care of his patients. One of the things that Frankel talks about is that when people lost hope, that that would be typically a, a very um, poor uh, indicator uh, or an indicator of a very poor outcome. Um, and he quotes uh, Nietzsche. He, who said, he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. And it, what he stressed was that it's really important that we have some sense of purpose, something that keeps us going, a sense of what for. And what I want to suggest in talking about how we care for people who are experiencing cognitive decline is that we are the why for one another. We are the what for, for one another. And so it's this affiliative system, this um, connected system, this relational system worth soothing one another that is the key. This is the most important thing that we can offer in the face of the psychological distress associated with these problems. So we are the why for one another. So I'm going to um, share with you um, this uh, framework that was developed, and I'm, I've adapted it a bit um, uh, by um, Susan McCurry uh, and a couple of other people. And it, it's um, based on the acronym DANCE. Uh, and it, I consider it to be five ways that we can bear in mind um, to extend a little more grace and maintain these soothing connections with one another in the midst of the frightening aspects of uh, cognitive decline. So the first uh, acronym letter is D, don't argue. The second is A, accept the condition. Uh, the third is N, nurture yourself. Um, the uh, fourth is C, create novel solutions. And the fifth is E, enjoy the moment. So the acronym is DANCE. And I'm going to explain these each in a little more detail. So the D for don't argue is kind of an important one because when a person is experiencing cognitive decline, it's pretty much by definition that they're not going to be able to follow a, a kind of nuanced argument about what it is that we're expecting them to do or hoping that they're going to do. And so this is kind of my case against explaining or over-explaining. And, and I don't mean never explain. It's not that. It's just explain once and you kind of know like the person kind of got it or doesn't get it. If they have questions, you'll answer them, of course. You, you don't want to do, though, is kind of bogged down in argument because what that does is undermine the soothing aspects of that affiliative system, which is which means we're going to do more threat detection, which means we're going to have a narrower behavioral repertoire, which means we're going to experience more cognitive problems, right? So this is the, the rationale, if you will, for don't argue, is we want to do the best we can to focus on 
the dignity of the person for whom we're caring and soothing them, uh, providing safety to the extent that we can. We want to be able to accept the condition. And this is a hard one. Obviously, we're going to do everything possible to ameliorate any physical problem that the person is having or any disease process that we can identify. And we've got to recognize at the same time that there are going to be aspects of this that might not respond to any intervention, any medical intervention. And so I, I often put it this way, cognitive disability isn't desirable and it does exist, right? And an another aspect of this I want to emphasize is that it's also really important to recognize that cognitive decline, it isn't evenly distributed typically. It's really unusual for it to be evenly distributed across a person's abilities. And it's also very unlikely to be consistent, right? Like meaning that it'll always be the same. Um, so you may have a person that you're working with and, you know, maybe, you know, experiencing this yourself to some degree. Um, I've experienced things like this uh, in my own life recently, um, you know, where you can remember or the person can remember very specific details of a quite a sophisticated book or nuanced observation about um, theology and just and not be able to remember how to run the washing machine, right? Not be able to figure out how to, you know, get an email to work. And and so you say like, well, it's not cognitive decline because they can do this and they and so they must be okay. But that's not necessarily the case um, because this is quite an uneven experience sometimes. Um, I might be able to re remember that nuanced point about theology and not remember my best friend's name. Um, and then um, at the at the same time, um, the functioning can really vary widely, and it can vary according to a number of things. It can vary by time of day. It can vary by things like blood sugar, so with how recently the person has eaten or not eaten. Um, it can vary by um, the medication that the person takes, um, and it can vary by the level of distress that the person is experiencing. So there's a lot of functional variation. And what we're trying to do here with this letter is accept that there's a lot of variability here and unfortunately not as much control as we might like. So that brings me to the end, which is the importance of nurturing ourselves. And you see this illustration here, you're probably familiar with this, um, the uh, uh, pr procedure in an airplane when the oxygen masks come down. If you're caring for someone in the airplane, um, the instruction is that you put the oxygen mask on yourself first. And you do that because if you pass out, you're of no real help to the person that you're caring for, right? So it's really important that we take care of ourselves. Um, and it's important that we validate our own emotional experience. You know, caring for somebody who's experiencing cognitive decline is heartbreaking at times. It's really frustrating at times. With sadness, anger, disappointment, fear, shame, these all go along with this experience. And the thing that I always say is that feelings are never wrong. Emotions, I don't believe, can be wrong. And they deserve our acknowledgement. And it might still be important not to let them run our lives. Right? And that doesn't mean that we aren't going to acknowledge them. 
and we can still make a decision about what we're going to do. And, you know, it's probably uh, the most obvious advice that anybody can give anyone, but get all the help you can, right? Um, it, it, you don't want to turn help away. And we want to extend grace and compassion toward ourselves and the people that we're um, living with and caring for. And also in that process, remember that it's useful to take a break. So we're nurturing ourselves to care for others. And then this one actually is a pretty important one. The, the C in dance is create novel solutions. Everybody's trajectory of cognitive aging is going to be different and it's going to be unique. And there are just going to be things that used to work that don't work anymore. I was working with someone not that long ago and their um, spouse just always, always had sat in the front seat of the car and, you know, was always kind of an active passenger in the car. And they just suddenly couldn't get getting into the front seat anymore. They would always sit in the back seat. And this person was very anxious about it because they would be driving in the front seat and their um, uh, spouse is sitting in the back seat and, it, and they couldn't see them. And there were just a lot of anxiety about it, but there wasn't any other way. And so, you know, that's a solution. We got to be able to go to the grocery store and, you know, it's a novel way of going to the grocery store, but, you know, my spouse is going to sit in the back. Um, and so we're going to be able to be flexible here if we can look for novel solutions. I often also remind people uh, when possible to look for the ABCs. And by ABCs, I mean antecedents, like the things that are, are um, leading up to a behavior, the behavior and the consequences of the behavior. And we got to be a little bit careful that we're not uh, accidentally reinforcing unwanted behaviors. So if the only time anybody talks to me is if I'm screaming in the hallway, then when people talk to me, that's going to be reinforcing of my screaming in the hallway. So I, I, it really would be a good idea to have another way of interacting with people and getting some soothing, right? And we want to be able to figure that out by watching what's happening uh, behaviorally with the person. And then, you know, while it's very important to think about what things a person has found meaningful in the past, doesn't necessarily mean that those are going to be the things that they find meaningful going forward. Also, it's really not a great idea to assume that because we find something meaningful, another person finds it meaningful. So we might have to do some creative work there and figuring out what it is that a person is going to find meaningful and facilitate their engagement with others. And the last, the E in dance is enjoy the moment. And this gets back again to the notion of finding relational and meaningful activities, because those are usually the sense, the, the things that give us joy and vitality in life, um, relationship and meaningful activities. I have the houseplant here because I'm referring to a very famous study that was done by Ellen Langer um, and Judith Roden in the 1970s. Judith Roden, some of you may remember, is a former president of the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and um, in this study, they went to a nursing home and they gave half the people in the nursing home, well, they gave everybody in the nursing home a plant, a house plant. They told half the people that the plant was just there in their room 
um, as a kind of decoration and the nurse will take care of it. And they told the other half of the people that the plant was there, it was their responsibility to take care of and they should see that it got um, water and sunlight and um, you know, uh, that it had the conditions to thrive. And what was interesting about this study was not, when I first read it, I thought, oh, I guess we'll see how the plants do. It's not about the plants, right? It's about the people. And what happened was that the people who were told that the house plant was their responsibility, not, they felt better and they lived longer than the people who were told that the plant was just there for them to appreciate and somebody else would care for it. So it is important for people to have opportunities for enjoyment. And generally, people really like to help others. And so uh, simple chores, things that a person can do, focusing on what they can do rather than on what they can no longer do, and emphasizing the importance of the interpersonal aspects of these activities, caring for others and relating to others. When we're facing these situations, which are characterized by threat, I often think of the definition of courage. And I'm going to share with you a definition of courage that I learned from military veterans. I was um, working with veterans um, with PTSD for a while. And we, we tend to think about courage as um, a kind of uh, strength in the face of something that we fear. And etymologically, the word courage means greatness of heart. And this veteran told me that courage was actually a decision. And I thought that was so such an important uh, understanding. So it's not the absence of fear. Of course you feel fear. Courage is the decision that there is something more important than fear. Right? And so that's what we're emphasizing here with the DANCE acronym, is putting our emphasis on the things that are more important than fear. And when do we do this? Well, I want to go back to Viktor Frankl again, um, just to conclude. And uh, Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning says this, between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. So when we're faced with those difficult emotions, the anger, the fear, the frustration, the utter exasperation with a person's behavior that's not really meeting the expected norms of our setting, our situation, um, the, the fear of, of seeing someone's decline. When we're in that, giving ourselves a moment to choose what's most important, perhaps even letting the fear be a reminder to us that it is a situation in which we have a choice and seeing what it is we wanna to choose to foster the relatedness that will be the most likely source of soothing for ourselves and the person we're working with. You've been listening to the Wellness Journey podcast from the St. John Vianney Center. I hope today's topic, the dance of aging, responding with grace to cognitive decline proves useful to you. You can find all of our podcasts and additional resources for clergy and religious on our website at sjvcenter.org. Click on resources. We are companions on your journey to stay healthy in mind, body, and spirit. 
We are the St. John Vianney Center, and our mission is you.